Hello, boys and girls. This is Dr. John, and Auntie Sue and I are so happy to welcome you to the Children's Story Hour. Hello, Auntie Sue. Hello, Dr. John. Thank you for the Children's Story Hour and the stories we are hearing. Aren't they wonderful? You know, it reminds me, Auntie Sue, when we were missionaries in Fiji. They were exciting times. It wasn't always easy. Do you remember, we only used to get paid once a month, and we'd go to the supermarket and we would buy lots of wonderful food, and the first week we would eat like kings, and the second week we would eat like princes, but the third and the fourth week, what do we live on? Rice, potatoes, cassava. And rice, and potato, (laughs) and cassava. And, you know, we used to look forward when we could go to the supermarket again and get food. But the stories that we're hearing are from real missionaries, and all of them are so exciting. You know, Auntie Sue, it's wonderful to see some letters coming in from boys and girls who are listening to these stories. And I'm wondering if you could just remind us about the contact details so they can write to us. Yes, you can write to us at... Children's Story Hour, 3ABN Australia Radio, PO Box 752, Morissette 2264, New South Wales, Australia, or email radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. You can also check us out at radio page on 3ABN Australia website. The web address is www.3abnaustralia.org.au. Auntie Sue, we are so grateful that God looks after his missionaries and he looks after the boys and girls. And would you like to pray for us, please? Yes. Loving Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you care for every one of us and care for even little birds that fall from the sky and you care for all the people that are in war-torn countries but dear Lord we are so thankful that you have your loving arms around us we look forward to the day when we can see you thank you for hearing our prayer Amen Thank you Auntie Sue Boys and girls keep those letters coming keep the pictures coming we just love them so much and we would love to share your names with all the boys and girls who listen to our program so now sit down gather around be quiet here come some more stories from the children's story hour Hi, girls and boys. I have another story for you today, God in the Strawberries. Mother needed some extra money. That's why she was so pleased to see the sign in Farmer Jackson's hedge, Wanted Strawberry Pickers. Would you children like to go with me and pick strawberries, she asked Allard and Fran. We could earn a little money that way. Of course we would, they said eagerly. When can we start? Tomorrow, I suppose, said her mother. But tomorrow's Friday, said Fran. I know, said mother, but we'll start if we can, even though it's the end of the week. 
Early next morning, all three went out to the strawberry patch and picked away as hard as they could. Alad and Fran were thrilled to think that they could help Mother like this and hoped they'd have a lot of money to give her at the end of the day. They never grumbled once, no matter how tired they felt, as the afternoon wore on. At the end of the afternoon, Farmer Jackson drove up with his truck and picked up the boxes of strawberries, paying for them on the spot. Fran received some money, Alad a little bit more, and Mother most of all. They were all grateful and happy. It had been a good day, and now they had money enough to buy groceries for the weekend. It'll be lovely to get home again and clean up, said Mother. Could we go by the river, asked Alad. Why not, said Mother, that is, if you don't mind the extra walk. The children said they didn't mind, so off they all went through the strawberry field to the river. They had almost reached the bank when Fran gave a cry of alarm. My purse, she cried, where is it? Oh no, you haven't lost it, have you? asked her mother anxiously. I don't know, said Fran. I had it only a few minutes ago, but it's gone. I must have dropped it somewhere. And it had all your earnings in it, said Mother. Yes, said Fran. I've never had so much money in my purse before. And we need it so badly, said Mother. Come on, let's look for it. But there were so many strawberry plants, and where the strawberry plants ended, so much grass... Some of the grass was very long. It's like looking for a needle in a haystack, said Alad after a while. They searched for an hour without success. Then they began to look toward the river, but they found no trace of the purse. The sun was going down, it would soon be dark. Hungry, weary and discouraged, they stood for a moment, wondering what to do next. Mother and Alad said that they should go home and leave the purse. But Fran thought that they should stay and take one more look. And let's ask God to help us, she suggested. Why not, said Mother. The three of them knelt by the river and told God about their troubles. They needed his help to find the purse before it was completely dark. Please, dear God, said Fran, you know where the purse is, do tell us. Then we can go home happy. Mother said, Amen, and so did Alad, and both hoped with all their hearts that God would answer Fran's prayer. By and by they all stood up and searched again. I'm afraid we'll have to go, said Mother after a while. It's getting late. I'm very, very sorry. The sentence was never finished. All of a sudden she shouted, there it is. She was right. Fran's purse was at her feet, a yard or so from the river. She had nearly trodden on it. Now we must say another prayer, said Fran, and thank God for being so good to us. They did, right there beside the river. and girls, it's Auntie Cecily back again. 
It's been so good to have you join me in reliving our experiences with Libby from my book Libby and His Bush Friends. Today is our final chapter called Moving On. When they are mature, most native animals move on to look for a mate, establish a new territory and produce offspring. It was always hard to say goodbye when this time came, but the very reason we cared for native animals was to help prepare them to live an independent life in the bush. Sometimes they would bring their offspring to visit. Those were always special times for us. Libby continued to live in the bush and make regular visits to our house at night until he was three years old. Then the time arrived when he did not come home for several weeks, so we sadly resigned ourselves to never seeing him again. I was missing his company so much I decided to paint a picture of Libby to remind us of the good times we had enjoyed together. During the following weeks, I worked on the painting as time allowed. I was putting the final touches on it when Libby wandered through the back door one evening. What are you doing back here, I said, scooping him up into my arms. You're supposed to be gone. Look, I've even done a painting to remember you by, and now you come home again. Libby was not one little bit interested in the painting. He just wanted me to take him to the kitchen so he could check out what was available to eat. Libby only visited a few more times after that. Of course, the memories of his gentle and trusting ways are as fresh as ever. The close relationship we enjoyed with Libby and his bush friends gave us a glimpse of what it will be like in heaven, where all the animals, great and small, will be gentle and friendly. Caring for God's creatures has many rewards. In just the same way as we need to be thoughtful and caring with the animals that we come in contact with, let us always remember the needs of people in our family and in our neighbourhood as well. We need to show unselfish love and kindness to those around us and help others wherever we can. One day you will grow up and move on too. When you leave home, you will have to make many decisions for yourself. If you learn the Bible verses included in these stories, it will help you to make wise decisions. The Bible says, The fear or the proper respect of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do his commandments. Psalm 111 verse 10, first part. If you respect and honour God and follow the truths found in the Bible, you will have a peaceful and fulfilled life and bring happiness to others. There comes a time for all of us, even possums, to say goodbye and move on. But one thing's for sure, Libby was the most loved and best fed possum on Harvey's range. story time and this is Uncle Gordon to bring you another story from the South Pacific Islands.
I'd like to tell you a story about my own experience because sometimes the Lord can't use us until he's able to correct some of the weaknesses and to build up some strength in us. I became a, a Christian in my early teens and uh, I had one ambition, that was to become a missionary. So when I was 18, I went off to college and trained for four years, nearly five years, as a minister. But unfortunately, I was not uh, given the opportunity to be a minister, not even in the homeland here. And it worried me because I needed work. And I did all kinds of work. One of the jobs that I did was working on a sheep and cattle station way out the back of Queensland. And uh, my job was to work the tractors and cultivate the land. And all the time I was thinking, well, why am I here? I want to be a missionary in the South Pacific Islands. And all the time I was just being pushed further and further away from that uh, ambition. And while I was out there, some of the tasks that I had to do was to help with the sheep and the cattle that were on there. And when they would have a, a droving program, all the workers would be... My main work was to drive the tractors and prepare the land and to grow the fodder. But uh, on certain occasions, I'd have to go horseback and bring in the sheep or in the cattle. On this particular occasion, I was bringing in a mob of sheep. It was a large mob, and there were a lot of little lambs with the mothers there, and uh, it was a large crowd, and you had to take them very slowly because of the little lambs. And my horse is uh, used to that, and it would walk very slowly and with its head down. But if anyone moved away from the flock, it would head out with it. And so I suddenly noticed that the horse was moving out, and I saw a little lamb moving away from its mother and getting cut off from the, the main flock. And I got off the horse because I didn't want to frighten that lamb. But the further I went after it, the further it went away from the flock. And I, I thought, this poor little lamb is going to get lost if we don't do something about it because the flock was moving on. And the owner of the farm, he saw how far it was getting away and he yelled out to me, leave it alone, It'll, it doesn't matter if it perishes. I couldn't uh, understand that because it was a precious little lamb and I wanted to save it. But every time I'd move towards the lamb, it would run away. So I got down on my hands and knees, and as I crawled along the ground, I bled just like a lamb, like its mother would do. And as I did that, it stopped, and it, it loosened, and I'd get a little closer and a little closer. And each time that I would cry out like its mother, it would uh, stop and it'd look at me. Eventually, I got so close to it, I reached out my hand quickly, and I grabbed it. And I was able to pick it up and uh, carry it back on my shoulder to the horse, and then I got up on the horse and went back. And as I got back, it's, it's bleating because it could hear all the other lambs crying out. But there was one lamb there that seemed to be crying out that seemed to affect this little lamb that I had. And it must have been the mother because uh, as it would cry out, this other voice would cry out too. And so I put the little lamb down. And after a while, I saw the mother come over and she was so happy. Her tail was wagging and the little lamb's tail was wagging and it had a drink from its mother. And uh, I thought, well, there it is. We've saved that little lamb. And that's what the Lord is saying to us. There are little lambs and some big lambs too that need to be saved out there. And it reminded me because eventually I got away from working on farms and got into education and, and uh, was called to go to, this, to the islands as a missionary. And uh, while I was out there, I got to know many, many people, 
Eventually, I came back to the homeland here, and uh, I was visiting through uh, Tahiti, and on my way back from Tahiti to Sydney, I called in at the Cook Islands and met the folk there where I'd worked for many years. And then I called in at New Zealand where I had to change my plane and get uh, a flight back to Sydney. While I was there, the Cook Islanders heard that I was in the place and they all came to the airport and met me and I had about five hours to wait. And they explained, oh, they said, come on home, we'll give you something to eat. So I went to their home and while we were eating there, quite a crowd was gathered together and they said, oh, one of our dear sisters is sick in hospital. She's only a young woman and uh, she's very sick in hospital. They don't think she's going to live. Would you be willing to offer prayer for her? I said, has she been anointed? They said no, and they wanted me to explain what anointing was. So I explained to them what that was. I said, now, if we go out there, only those who believe that God can truly heal this girl uh, and was willing to hear our prayer and, and do it, only those who know he can do it may come. The others who've got any doubts in their mind don't come because God can't uh, help where there's doubters. So we went into the hospital. When I was about to walk into the ward where this girl was, the doctor had just come out and I said, is it all right for us to go and visit? And I mentioned her name. Oh, yes, she said. She, she won't understand. She's in a coma now. We don't think she'll even live till the morning. And I said, would you mind if we have prayer with her? No, go ahead, do what you like. And so we went in there and the girl looked very, very sick. And so I spoke to the group that were with me, about five or six of them, and I told them what I was going to do, and I had some oil, olive oil, which was the anointing oil, and I had it in a little flask. And I told them that we were going to have prayer, and I want every one of them to pray and believe that the Lord could do this, that if it was his will, this girl would be healed. Because Jesus had promised, he said, you go out, tell them what the truth is, and if there are any sick, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, even cast out demons, he said. And so um, we knelt round and each one prayed. And then I prayed earnestly for that girl. And as I prayed for her, I poured the oil over her head and let it run down over her uh, face a little and, and her ears and onto her shoulders. But she didn't know a thing about it. And uh, after a while, somebody said to me, well, Pastor, your plane will be leaving soon. We'll have to take you to the airport. So we left the hospital and I never learned what, what happened to that girl, whether she died or whether it was healing. And, you know, sometimes the islanders don't write too many letters and I didn't get any letter when I was back in Sydney. And some months later I was back in Auckland and as I was met by the people there, and many of them were Cook Islanders, uh, one young lady came to me and she said, Oh, Pastor, and she gave me a big hug. And uh, I said, Yeah, and I didn't recognise her, didn't know who it was. But you know, it was that girl. And she said, uh, I, I didn't know a thing of what you did, but I understand what you did because they've told me over and again. But I said, I woke up in the morning about four o'clock and I sat up in bed and I was, I was feeling very good and I was hungry. And so I called the nurse and the nurse came in. She was surprised to see me sitting up. And uh, I asked for something to eat. And so they were all excited. So I had to ring the doctor and say, if it, it was all right to give something to eat. And she said they brought me in some breakfast, which I ate and I really enjoyed. And within that day, they gave me a clearance from hospital and I was able to leave. That was just the day after you had anointed me, the night before. And I see that the Lord's hand was there and he blessed. And I want to serve the Lord faithfully now. And I praise the Lord that he heard our prayer. 
That's what the Lord is all about. He wants you and me to be able to do that because he sent his disciples out. He said, feed the sick, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. This is what the Lord wants each one of us to do. And God will use you. doesn't matter what you've done in the past. If you're forgiven, as he's willing to do, and you ask him to use you, he'll make use of you in all ways. May the Lord bless you to this end. and girls, Saifile here. I'm so glad you have come back to join me in listening to another segment of the book, Ellen, the Girl with Two Angels, written by Mabel R. Miller. For nearly three months, James White drove Ellen and the Jordans hundreds of miles, stopping at Adventist homes. Ellen told each group about the visions God had given her. Her message brought joy and courage to all those who listened. Not all the Adventists welcomed Ellen. Some had very strange ideas. One group read in the Bible, Unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter heaven. Matthew 18, verse 3. We must act like little children, they preached. So instead of walking like adults, they crawled on their hands and knees. They hid behind doors and peeked out. They even sucked their fingers. People who acted strangely like this were called fanatics. Ellen tried to explain to them that Jesus meant that they should be pure, innocent, kind and obedient like little children. But the fanatics wouldn't listen. Instead, they screamed so loudly no one could hear Ellen. They shouted hateful words at her. They even tried to drive her out of their town. Ellen kept praying, Lord, send my second angel to me. And God always did. Ellen was not attacked or hurt. The weather grew warmer, and as the snow melted, James couldn't drive his sleigh anymore. They arrived back in Orrington, exhausted from months of travelling. Friends of the Jordans had invited the travellers to go to their home for a few days. The weary travellers looked forward to the quiet rest, but when they arrived, the woman grabbed them and jerked them into the house. Getting quickly, she said, then she slammed the door and locked it. What is going on? Bill Jordan asked. The police are blaming Ellen for all the trouble and noise the fanatics are making, the hostess said. They've made a law that no Adventists may meet together to pray, no matter how few. If they are found, they'll be thrown into jail. Some Adventists have given up believing there is a God, but many others are faithful, yet lonely and filled with terror. Oh, Ellen said, they need help. We must meet with them this very night and give them courage. God's promise of protection is for them too. Secret messages went out for anyone who wished to come and meet with Ellen. Late that night, in total darkness, Ellen told about her wonderful visions the Lord had given her about the glories of heaven and the new earth. She also made sure that everyone understood that Jesus loved them and still led them. Everyone left feeling happier and blessed by God. Suddenly, God gave Ellen a vision. He told her that she must leave Arrington early the next morning because an angry mob of men planned to harm her. The moment James White heard about God's warning, he went into action. How could he help her? He couldn't use his sleigh now that the snow had melted. If he could borrow a rowboat and find two strong men to help, they could row Alan and the Jordans to the seaport town of Belfast. Then he could put them on a steamship headed for their home in Portland, Maine. I'll do it, he said aloud. Before the first light of morning, the group silently climbed into the rowboat. With the oars, the two men pushed the boat away from the bank. 
They sailed down the river as the new day dawned with a beauty that told them God was near, guiding them with his love. When they reached Belfast, Ellen and the Jordans boarded a passenger ship ready to sail for Portland. Ellen stood on the dock waving her thanks to the young man she'd grown to admire, the young man God had sent to protect her while she travelled. The tall young man, James White, stood on the shore waving as if he couldn't stop. Ellen wondered how long it would be before she saw the earnest Christian young man again. Only a few weeks after Ellen arrived safely at home, God asked her to visit other Adventist groups in New Hampshire. As soon as James learned Ellen and her sister Sarah were travelling, he left at once to find them. He felt that God had given him the job of protecting Ellen. James told Ellen and Sarah some tough men had given him a horse whipping and thrown him into jail overnight after he'd helped Ellen escape. I'm so glad it was me instead of you, he told Ellen. A beating like that would have killed you. As they worked together, James and Ellen grew fond of each other, but they believed Jesus would come that very year and thought they shouldn't marry. God knew their thoughts, so he talked with Ellen in a vision. He told her he wasn't coming right away and that she could trust James White always and completely. You know what this means, James said, his eyes shining. It means he wants us to marry. We'll both be happier that way and you'll always have me to protect you. James, I must hear from God before making such a serious decision, Ellen said. Let's each pray about it earnestly for two weeks, James agreed. Then one day, when they would never forget, James stopped by the Harmon home. Ellen welcomed him. They talked about other things until James could wait no longer. Shall we marry, he asked. Ellen looked directly into his loving eyes. Yes, James, yes. On August 30, 1846, James Springer White, 25 years old, and his bride Ellen Gould Harmon, 18, stood before a justice of peace in Portland, Maine, and promised to love and be faithful to each other. They both knew that their promises were to each other and to God. For the next 35 years, James and Ellen worked together for God. They helped start the worldwide Seventh-day Adventist Church, a church that will last until Jesus comes. Mrs. Tammy, this isn't just any ordinary snow. That wind is starting to pick up and we might be in for some rough weather. We'd better get back to Old Chopper and head on back to base camp. Okay, Ranger Dan, I'll I'll follow you. It's almost too sad to leave, though. The Arctic is such a wonderful place filled with so many amazing creatures and I've learned so much about my wonderful God. We'll have to come again, Ranger Dan. For sure, Mrs. Tammy. It'd be my absolute pleasure to bring you back to see the Frozen Chosen. It's getting hard to see, Ranger Dan. How are we going to find our way back to base camp? Uh, Don't worry, Mrs. Tammy. Old Chopper's got a special relationship with the boys upstairs. There's a few big satellites up there in space zapping messages to Chopper to help him and me know exactly where we are and tell us where we need to go. They'll guide us safely home. Oh, that's good news. You know, Ranger Dan, just like how those satellites are watching down over Chopper, 
Jesus is watching and guiding us. Yeah, that's right. And the Bible says, Mrs. Tammy, that Jesus will never leave or forget about us. So you never have to worry about anything because no matter where we go in this big old world of ours, God is there with us because he is everywhere. If you're higher, if you're low, if you're out there in the snow, if you're underneath the sea, all high up in a tree, you have no worries or no cares, cause you see God is there, how do we know our God is there, oh how do we know, well cause he is everywhere, he's the everywhere man, he's everywhere, he's in the sea and on the land, he's everywhere, he's in your heart and by your side, he's by your side, no God is everywhere, he's the everywhere man. So if you're higher, if you're low, if you're higher, if you're low, if you're out there in the snow, if you're out in the snow, if you're underneath the sea, under the sea, or high up in a tree, way up in a tree, you have no worries or no cares, cause you see God is there, how do we know our God is there? Cause he's everywhere He's the everywhere man He's everywhere He's in the sea and on the land He's everywhere He's in your heart and by your side He's by your side No, from him you cannot hide Cause he's the everywhere man He's everywhere He's always got you by the hand He's got your hand So if you're here Oh, there well, you never have to care cause God is everywhere he's the everywhere man Hey boys and girls, I'm Auntie Nat. I'm so glad that you have come back to join me in reading the Bible. Have you got your Bibles ready? Auntie Nat is reading out of the New King James Version. And today we're going to start in John chapter 2 and start reading in verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. So after the wedding of Cana, Jesus, his brothers, and his mother and Jesus' disciples go down to Capernaum, which is a small village by the Sea of Galilee. Being fishermen, this was where the brothers, Andrew and Simon Peter, lived. Here they spent a few days. Let's continue reading in verse 13. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. 
So boys and girls, it was time for the yearly Passover where the Jews went to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices in the temple. Jesus and his disciples joined the crowds of people making their way down to Jerusalem. Let's continue in verse 14. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Wow. So Jesus is not very happy with what he saw. Because the Jews came from all over the country and their surrounds, money had to be exchanged for a temple shekel, as every Jew had to pay a yearly half shekel as a ransom payment. So money changers had been set up in the outer courts of the temple to provide this service. The only problem was that the money changers would charge a fee to change the money, sometimes too much, and thus they made a great profit for themselves and the priests. Also, people would purchase animals according to their social and economic status to offer in the temple for the forgiveness of their sins. But again, the animal sellers would charge too much and again make huge profits. So you can imagine, boys and girls, the noise and confusion and the chinking of coins as the people made their purchases. It had become a marketplace, not a holy, reverent temple, and Jesus was indignant. Jesus was also particularly distressed by the poor and disadvantaged people who had no hope of participating in the service because of their lack of means. The priests had lost sight of the true meaning of the temple and had no compassion for these needy people. Let's read in verse 17. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So boys and girls, you can find this prophecy in Psalm 69.9. The people were awestruck by Jesus' words. In Jesus' humanity, they saw a divinity flash through him. Jesus spoke of the authority of a king. Even his disciples trembled at this scene. The sellers and money changers, they were so convicted of their sin, they ran away so frightened. The cleansing of the temple in such a dramatic way was Jesus making known his mission as the Messiah. Jesus' mission on this earth was to cleanse people's hearts from sins, to set them free. So the cleansing of the temple was quite a statement at the beginning of his ministry. Let's continue reading in verse 18. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So here, boys and girls, Jesus is foretelling that the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed, and it was about 40 years after his death. Also, he was referring to himself as the temple, and three days after his death, he would be resurrected. 
This was not understood by many, including the priests and the disciples. But verse 22 says that after Jesus' resurrection, the disciples remembered these words and it strengthened their belief in the scripture. Let's read verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. It's interesting here, boys and girls, that once the buyers and sellers had dispersed from the temple, Jesus was actually able to now minister to the suffering and the disadvantaged. The people went away praising God, which is what church is all about, isn't it? He's going to church and hearing the message and praising the Lord. Let's read verse 24 and 25. But Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew all men, and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So here Jesus knew the hearts of men. Often the words he spoke could not be understood at the time, but would be brought to their minds later on when the time was right for them to understand the meaning. God is so good, he knows the end from the beginning, and there is a right time for everything. Boys and girls, I hope you've enjoyed the reading and the readings that we've been doing in the Bible. And now I would like to have a prayer with you. So let's close our eyes. Dear Father, I want to thank you so much for our Bibles. Lord, we can learn so much about you. And I ask, Lord, that you be with these children and adults alike who have been listening to these readings. May you enable them to understand, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. May they take these words to their heart and may they give their hearts to you. We ask, Lord, for safekeeping. We ask, Lord, for wisdom and discernment. We ask, Lord, that you continue to guide and direct us in our life. We thank you for your Bible. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for the sacrifice you made for us. And I ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Boys and girls, this is Dr. John, and we're finishing the story by Eric B. Hare of How the Seed Grows. The story of Own Bwint, who was so faithful in bringing his report. And what do the God worshippers look like, said Father? The God worshippers, O oh Father, are strange looking people indeed. They are white all over, and their clothes are so funny. There are two mamas, or white ladies, and how they put their robes on, I don't know. The whole In the top is tight on the neck. How could they put their heads through it? And the thara is very long and thin. The top of my head verily comes only to his shoulders. But his hair is black and straight, and his tongue talks just like ours. At first I thought that surely I would be frightened, but when I heard the thara speaking, it touched my ears very pleasantly, and I was very happy. Have you seen inside their house? asked his mother. Yes, I have been in all the house and the school and in the disease house, which they call dispensary. Then uh, where do they keep the dortaka? There is no dortaka, O mother. Of this I am very sure. Have I not been there for three moons and I have watched day by day and night by night 
Have I not asked among those who have been there for a long time till I am sure there is no Dortaka? And you ought to hear them sing. It is so sweet. They talk of a heaven and the God that created the world and the sky. They are not afraid of spirits, and they say it displeases the great God to worship idols and priests. How do they worship the great God, son? Now, I do not understand everything just yet, but from what I can see, they must clean themselves inside and out. Washing their clothes and their body is cleaning the outside and not eating filthy betel nut or drinking on smoke or eating pigs or snakes is cleaning the inside. They are so happy. And when it comes to the seventh day, they don't work or have school, but they all go to the school and sing and read the holy book and pray. How do they pray? Interrupted Father. They just kneel down, shut their eyes, and talk to God and tell him everything. They say that when they do that, God hears them right up in heaven. And they don't have to ring a bell or beat a drum because their God is awake all the time. Have you ever seen the holy book, my brother? said Nuesin. Indeed, I have one of my own, and I can read it. The words are our words, not Burmese words, and we can easily understand. The next time I come back, I will surely bring it back with me, and I'll read you the words of the holy book. And so they questioned and listened and questioned again until after a few days, when Owen went returned to school, they were left bewildered but happy. The mother musing to herself as she worked at the cotton gin as to whether they really were or really were not door tuckers. The father feeling that perhaps his son was treading on dangerous ground. The sister resolving that she herself would go someday to see the God worshippers and hear them sing. Tara. May I have permission to go home for four days? Owen Wint had been at school for two years and proved himself a very good student. And above all, he had heard the words of the living God and had believed and accepted Jesus Christ of the God worshippers. And what do you want to go home for now, said Thara? Is there not to be a baptism at the new year? I want to go home and ask permission of my father and mother to be baptized. How gladly the permission was given. How joyfully Owen Bwint set off the next morning. How expectantly did we await his return. Four days passed. Five, six. Owen Bwint came back, but the sun had set. The birds no longer sang for him. The world had suddenly grown cold and dark, for not only had all the family strongly opposed such a step, but his father had declared that he must banish all such thoughts from his head, or when their family assembled in devil worship, they must count him as being dead. A few days later, the baptism was held. And with genuine feeling, we sang, Oh, happy day at the riverside. But it was not a happy day for Owen Bwint. He sat by a bush where he could see what was happening and the realization that he could have been among the people baptized 
overwhelmed him with such a crushing blow, and that night, just as we were preparing to go to sleep, he came and knocked quietly to see Tara. Well, Ernbwint, I asked kindly, what brings you at this late hour? No answer. But a silence that spoke of an awful struggle, tearing his soul apart. Quietly I added, it was a nice service we had today. How I hope to baptize you too. Oh, how it hurt. But though his eyes filled with tears, he choked back the sobs and replied, Tara, I want to go home tomorrow. Go home tomorrow? I exclaimed in surprise. Yes, Tara, I'm going back to ask my father and mother once more, and if they won't give me permission, I'm going to tell them that even if they must count me as dead, I must be baptised. And, he added slowly and with much more difficulty, if I haven't the courage to go through it, then, then I won't come back any more. The lump in his throat choked him, and the battle in his soul reached its climax, and he broke down, sobbing piteously at the foot of the stairs. Whoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. Whoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. My hand was on his shoulder in a minute, and I said, Lad, why carry all this heartbreaking burden by yourself? Let us tell the Master. And together we went down on our knees right there and pleaded in the darkness for help. Help came. It had to come. For has not God himself declared, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will answer you? Surely these were days of trouble for own Bwint. And in the middle of his pleading we heard the voice saying, Go with him. Why have we not thought of that before? The sob stayed, we lay down for the night, but not to sleep. The dawn came and the bullock cart was prepared, and we were off. But uncle... We are not leading your boy into evil. I was talking to the old father and mother inside, beside the fireplace. The boys were outside praying. Oh, no, not into evil, they agreed. And see how clean and manly he is since he gave up betel nut and tobacco. Oh, yes, he is very good to be able to rule one's desires. Then if there is nothing against Christianity, you won't mind your son becoming a real true good Christian, will you? Father grunted. Mother gave a vicious chew on the beetle nut and spat. I prayed, then added, say you don't mind. Say you'll give your permission. The old mother answered, ask his father. And the father looked uneasy, grunted, spat, and then nodded his head. It was over. The old folks retired and slept. We busied ourselves in preparation for the return journey to the mission station, and early the next morning found us on our way. Own Bwint sang, and the birds all sang with him. The trees seemed to be rejoicing together. The sun never shone so brightly. And as we reached the mission, the moonlight turned the mighty river to silver, and all was peace. Own Bwint was baptized the following Sabbath and amount to anything? 
Why? He taught in our school here all one year and then we placed him on a station 18 miles away from our main station. It'll be hard to get much to eat, Owen Bruno told him, and we won't be able to see you very often during the rainy season. That doesn't matter, Tara, he said. Think of what Christ did for me. He had no place to call his own. For him, I must do my best. And he did. At our last camp meeting, he came in with four bullock carts of people, two of whom were ready for baptism. Always bring your reports in on the first Sunday of the new quarter, I tell my station men, and Owen Bwint was always regular. But on the third quarter of last year, I was called to Rangoon just a few days before the first Sunday of the new quarter. So calling Peter, I said, Peter, take one of the boys with you and see if you can get out to Owen Bwint's place and bring me his report. He will be in on Sunday, but I must go to the city on Thursday. Peter left, but was back in the evening, disappointed at not being able to get out there. We have 250 inches of rain where we are in Burma, and it all comes between May and September. I didn't realize how flooded the country might be. Peter said, we walked through six miles of swamp mud up to our knees and water up to our waists. Then reaching the footholds, we swam four rivers, and we're trying to cross the fifth, but the current was so swift that we couldn't reach the other side, so we had to come back. I'm so sorry. Tara, I tried my best. His eyes filled with tears. His voice was caught. I felt something in my throat, and I couldn't speak for a moment. And then I said, Peter, my boy, you shouldn't have gone so far when you saw the terrible flooded condition. You should have come back. Your life is worth far more than a little bit of paper. So I went to the city without the report from Owen Bwint's place. The committee work was finished, and I was just completing a few purchases for the station when I received a letter from my wife. At the foot of the letter, she added a paragraph. Owen Bwint came in on Sunday. According to your instructions, he had to swim over 20 rivers and walk through six miles of swamp, but he Brought his report in time. Oh, boys and girls, that's the stuff. That's what the Lord makes shining diamonds out of for his kingdom. I don't care whether the faithfulness is found in the heart of a white man or a black man or a brown man. For him that is faithful unto death, there is laid up a crown of life. Afterwards, when I saw Owen Bwint and asked him why he risked so much to bring his report in, he said, Tara... When I went to that village, I promised the Lord that I would do my best, and that's all I could do. I tried to do my best. Master, no offering, costly or sweet, lay we like Magdalene here at thy feet. Yet may we never rest till we have done our best, dear Lord, for thee. Special thanks go to Pacific Press for giving 3ABN Australia Radio permission to read on air a selection from Jungle Stories, written by Eric B. Hare, and Ellen, the Girl with Two Angels, written by Mabel R. Miller. Also, thanks goes to Stanbra Press for giving 3ABN Australia Radio permission to read a selection of stories from the set of books called Uncle Arthur's Best Bedtime Stories. And thanks to Remnant Publications for permission to read the Remnant Young Scholar Study Bible on air. 
We would also like to thank Daniel and Tammy Cinzio for allowing us to play their CD, Frozen Chosen, on air. For any other information about the Children's Story Hour, you can contact us at radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. Whatsoever things are lovely, 
whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue or praise, think on these things. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just and pure, think on these things. Whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue or praise. You heard Jesus is Beautiful and Whatsoever Things Are True by Gavin Chitalia and the Children. And before that, Auntie Cecily sang This Is My Father's World. Well, boys and girls, we have come to the end of the Children's Story Hour. We thank you for joining us and we hope that you have enjoyed the program. On behalf of Auntie Sue, I would like to say God bless you and goodbye. Goodbye.